0: I could lay out the argument in a sentence. The workplace is killing people and no one cares. And I actually think that the second part of the sentence is worse than the first part. Friction is a huge psychological burden.
1: Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks.
0: I got to get it knife. <laughs> I got to hide it.
1: They oh, end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor, and this is The Friction Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Jeff Pfeffer. Jeff is a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Business School and the author of Dying for a Paycheck, which was just released earlier this year. We invited Jeff to the podcast to share his research on the toxic effects of unpredictable and overly demanding workplaces. Listen up, because we can all play a part in ending what Jeff calls public health crisis. So when you hear the word or the phrase organizational friction, what comes to mind? Bad friction. What, what do you what do you think about this? Is like a word association test or something?
0: Well, I'll probably fail the word association test. But when I would, what comes to mind when I hear the word friction is all the things that organizations do to get in the way. Of to do something that we wrote about once together, turning knowledge into action. Hmm. And also that gets in the way of people doing what they know they need to do. So friction for me would include things like useless meetings, of which there are many. Yes. Friction to me would 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 include Things such as bosses who micromanage and tell you what to do so that you can't do what you know you need to do and have to spend too much time fighting with your boss. So organizations really are filled with friction and a lot of friction, I think, comes from organizational attempts to excessively control behavior
1: it's actually lovely. And it's something that if you read Jeff Feffer's work, you can learn more about. Okay, so uh, dying for a paycheck, not a very optimistic title, you got to admit, Jeff. So why don't we start out for our listeners? Could, can you kind of just lay out the basic argument? So why is this a problem? What are some of the causes?
0: Sure. I could lay out the argument in a sentence. The workplace is killing people and no one cares. And I actually think that the second part of the sentence is worse than the first part. The workplace has actually become a public health crisis, not only in the US, but around the world. If you are worried about healthcare costs, if you're worried about health inequality, if you're worried about the health of people, which is, of course, related to healthcare costs, you need to pay attention to the workplace. Not the only thing you need to pay attention to, but you do need to pay attention to the workplace because the workplace is where people spend a lot of their time, where they earn their living, where they get their social identity, where they run into all kinds of things that actually make them ill, stressed, et cetera. So therefore, if if you're serious about reducing healthcare costs and making people healthier, one place to focus on is a workplace, a very important environment.
1: So since the book is called Dying for a Paycheck, let's get to the death part first, and then we'll sure. untangle things, because mm-hmm. you had some really specific causes that uh, that we believe are interesting from an organizational friction standpoint, but since your book is called Dying for a Paycheck, uh, you, you got to admit you can be a very dramatic person, so Help us give us the give us the evidence that that organizations actually are killing people. So that because our listeners want to know is this guy full of it or or is uh, he got some evidence?
0: Well, I'm full of it, but I also have some evidence. (laughs) Combination. (laughs) So I did this. uh, I did a lot of the research, not the stories and the other stuff, but a lot of the primary statistical research with two colleagues in operations research, and we began by identifying. Ten workplace exposures, which, by the way, don't cover all of them, mm-hmm. and in fact, we left out one of your favorites, which, by the way, has enormous health effects: workplace bullying. Yeah,
1: abusive supervision, incredible.
0: Abusive supervision is very, yeah. very costly and very and very bad for health. And we also left out discrimination based on race, gender, national origin, which also mm-hmm. turns out, by the way, to have health effects. But for the ten workplace exposures. We combined the results of all the statistical analyses for each exposure on four healthcare outcomes, mortality, as you've mentioned, do you have a physician-diagnosed illness, Mm -hmm. what's your self-reported physical health and your self-reported mental health. And we did these meta-analyses combining all these statistical things. And having finished all these meta-analyses, my friend Stefano Zinio said, nobody knows what an odds ratio is, so we need to benchmark this against something. And we sat around for a little minute and thought, and he said, let's, Take secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. Secondhand smoke is a known and regulated carcinogen. Yeah. And it turns out when you compare our 10 workplace exposures to secondhand smoke, you find that most of them are as harmful to health as and individually, mortality. Not collectively. Individually My as goodness. secondhand smoke. Really? So yes, really. So we, have having, a, this, we have a chapter on that. We have a table on that also. So, so, and and when you add them all up you come up with our estimate, which is a paper published in Management Science, suggests 120,000 excess deaths per year from the workplace, which would make the workplace the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, worse than Alzheimer's, worse than kidney disease. Okay,
1: so I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question, which you probably can't answer in your data, but. But if you had the choice, so if you got a choice of having like a really great boss, it's an open office environment, and and you got to sit next to this boss, really great in terms of uh, allowing you control, not excessive job demands, uh, a predictable schedule, these things that come out of your book, a really great boss, but he or she smokes versus the worst possible boss who doesn't smoke, and you got to sit next to him. So you're saying you should take the one yes. who smokes. Yes. Uh, according to your data? Yes. Now that is just amazing. Okay. That isn't,
0: that isn't amazing. It,
1: it's amazing. Okay. Because
0: you, it shouldn't be, and particularly it should not be amazing to you because you've written a book. Uh, you've actually now written two books. One was called The No Asshole Rule. One's called The Asshole Survival Guide. You understand. Well, yeah, should... You do understand the importance of of work environments broadly defined, and in this case more narrowly defined around a particular dimension of the work environment, you understand how important this is. People, if you take the emails that people have written you Mm. that caused you to write your second book, and, and think about the psychological and the physiological consequences of the pain that is represented in some of those emails.
1: You make a very strong case that organizations often don't care. Yes. But then you make the case that they actually should care. Yes. So, for, so from a pure productivity performance standpoint, why, why the heck should they care, assuming that they're all completely heartless? Which I'm not willing to say <laughs> that, but uh, apparently you are. <laughs> so.
0: They're not all heartless. They're, well, they're, most of them. Many of them are. <laughs> so here's why they should care. Number one, not surprisingly, surveys show that workplace stress is related to turnover, and we know that turnover is costly. So when you make people stressed, you make people sick, they quit, and that costs money. Secondly, many of the things that organizations are doing that make people ill or die turn out not to benefit the organizations either. So one of the big issues in life Mm -hmm. is economic insecurity, including layoffs. We know that layoffs kill people. There are tons of studies of this. The death from heart disease goes up on one study by 44% in the four years following a layoff. Suicide rates could more than double um, following layoffs. So, so layoffs clearly are bad for people's health and their sense of security. Do they help organizations? The evidence suggests that they don't. Work hours. The Economist magazine has this lovely chart. Per hour, productivity, number of hours worked. Mm-hmm. It's linearly down. Per hour, productivity uh-huh. goes down. The more hours on average a nation works. So we are, it's not like we're working you harder and we're getting something out of it. When you're exhausted, uh-huh. you don't do very good right, work. right, right. So and, it, and, and the final, the final uh, example I would use would be job autonomy. Uh-huh. For 40 years, maybe even longer, our friend who's now unfortunately deceased, Richard Hackman, wrote about job autonomy as one of the core job right. dimensions, that people with more autonomy in their job are more engaged, they're more motivated, they're more productive. The opposite of job autonomy is an absence of job control, right. which turns out to contribute to heart disease. Who's responsible for fixing this? I think... Of course, companies are responsible. But if companies aren't going to be willing to do what they should do, then the government needs to decide, as by the way, they are kind of in the UK, but they're not quite there yet. If the government decides that we do have a healthcare crisis, Mm -hmm. and the healthcare crisis is coming in part from what goes on in the workplace, we need, as we did years ago with respect to physical, occupational safety and health administration has driven down significantly injuries, you know, from misuse of tools and ladders and chemical exposures. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration will tell you, if you call them and find the right person to talk to who's not afraid of getting fired, that they understand the health effects of workplace stress, and they are prepared to intervene and drive that down. But, of course, in today's political environment, it's not going anywhere. So one of the questions is, why is there so little apparent care about people and, you know, one of the expressions of one of my friends at ESA, the business school in Barcelona, uses is, why do we care more about polar bears than human beings? Uh-huh. I think the assumption is, compared to trees or polar bears, uh-huh. that humans are agentic and can take care of themselves. Uh That if you don't like your job, you can quit. That that if your employer is mistreating you, you can speak up, that you have options, and that trees or polar bears Uh aren't able so well to take care of themselves. So the assumption is you can take care of yourself, we don't need to look out for your well-being or your welfare. The average employee, if the average employee finds that they are in a workplace that is making them ill, and they will know it, Mm -hmm. they may need to quit. And people say to me, well, you know, many people can't quit. And I say to them, I said, you know, I said, if you were in a room that was filling up with smoke, and you said to me, what is your solution? And I said, leave the room. You would not tell me they can't leave the room. You would tell me in a room filling up with smoke, they would leave the room. I'm telling you that many working conditions are as toxic as secondhand smoke. (laughs) If if it's that toxic, you better leave.
1: Let's start out with layoffs. So the health effects aside, I thought you had some really interesting arguments about layoffs actually make things more difficult for everybody. W- why is that? Because, you know, it's it's like, it's it's like you do the cost, you figure how much it is. If you have half as many, many people, like, uh, aren't you
0: making more money? No. Uh, because because in many instances, first of all, when you announce a layoff, most organizations do it the wrong way. They announce a layoff. Nobody knows who's going to get laid off, so everybody goes to look for another job, and the best people probably leave. Right. That's number one. Number two, and this does go to your issue of friction, Mm -hmm. if you think about what does it take to get a product out the door in a company, you have to have collaboration maybe between design and engineering and manufacturing and marketing and finance. And this collaboration or coordination often is based upon a set of people who have worked together over a long period of time. Right. And so there are studies that show that innovation goes down in the presence of layoffs because you break up. These yep. these collaborative networks, and now I have to get you in marketing to do something, but I don't know you, and you don't trust me, and so it makes it much harder to get anything done. So
1: it's so it's the it's the lack of it's the it's the decrease in in familiarity and the decrease in trust too, too actually. Correct. Correct. So that so so that so that's an interesting argument because when you have that sort of instability and, and everybody always talks about virtual teams and everything, but but you've kind of got the combination of uh, not knowing EP, one another. And having good reasons not to trust anybody. That's correct. Okay.
0: In the olden days, layoffs were done mostly for companies in financial trouble. Yep. Today, layoffs are done just period. Just you standard know, operating procedure. Standard operating procedure, they become regular. You know, if you're not doing layoff, what's wrong with you? So, that's, so, that's, so in many instances, layoffs are not being done by companies in financial stress. But even if you're in financial stress, one of the ways that the famous organization, Lincoln Electric, has never had a layoff is if enough of your compensation is variable compensation based upon profits, it will naturally adjust as profits go up and down. So Lincoln Electric has never had a layoff. Southwest Airlines, in a very cyclical industry, has never never had had a layoff. layoff. So, it is possible if you don't overgrow, if you don't overhire, if you have a form, a piece of the compensation that will adjust when profits go down, that profit sharing part goes down. It is possible to avoid layoffs. Xylenix, the semiconductor manufacturer, for a long time avoided layoffs. Um, So, the question is whether cutting people is the first thing you do or the last thing you do. And for many organizations, it's the first as opposed to the last. So,
1: So, in there, and there was some interesting evidence from Bain. That, that showed that companies that did fewer layoffs or didn't do layoffs at all bounced back much faster from the, the, the meltdown, the 2009 meltdown. And the reason's actually pretty obvious because, well, first of all, they don't have to hire and retrain people. And, and, and second of all, they're viewed as a more attractive employer because they don't of lay course. off people so they can actually hire better people too. So, uh, so there, are, there are some upsides to it. One thing I thought was really interesting was, especially in the gig economy world, is this idea of irregular and unpredictable work. Because to me, that's sort of the I'll talk more about that. Yeah. So, in addition to the health costs and the morbidity and everything that you document, wh- why is that bad for the organization? Just having employees on call, they can bring them in any time. You know, this it's just like having you know food on the shelf whenever you want it. It's there. Yeah. Like, what's wrong with that?
0: Well first of all, you have to ask who is likely to want to work under such circumstances, Mm -hmm. not necessarily people who have good alternatives. So again, if I, you know, people have, people face in their lives, mortgage payments, which do not vary. They face family obligations, which do not vary. They face other, uh, you know, food and shelter, whatever obligations that do not vary. So the fact that they're Work hours may be varying, uh, you know, week to week or maybe even day to day, and therefore their income varies week to week and day to day. Is experienced by most people is, is, is extremely stressful, mm-hmm. and uh, you do not do your best work when you're stressed.
1: Essentially, the, the way I read it is if people are always on, or they're always having to be vigilant because things are shifting, that, that essentially they're, they're in this, this state of like alert at all times. So they, it's, it's both friction and fatigue, which That's, ultimately has negative effects on the organization. Is that, is that fair? That's
0: exactly correct.
1: We've mostly been talking about the problem. Now, in your book, thank goodness, you've got some. Exam- My editor made me do it. My editor made <laughs> you do it. <laughs> you've actually got some optimism. So, oh gosh. Um, so, well, let, let's start out at kind of the organizational level. What, what, what are what are organizations that you do? Because even you said that, that not all organizations are bad in that this regard. Correct. So, 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 th- tell us a story about an organization you like that that actually buffers people from some of these harms.
0: Well, there are a number. One of them, which is probably something that many of your mm-hmm. listeners would have heard of, is some of the ones that they hadn't have heard of, would be Patagonia. Of course, I mean Patagonia, and it and it and it starts with a philosophy. I mean, you know, the the head of HR told me that they measure the percentage of women. Who, when they have children, then return to work at Patagonia, huh. and it's about 99%, which is of course much higher than <laughs> than the norm. And and they hold, and and part of that is, is is they do, and they then provide all kinds of accommodations for mothers who have returned to work, uh, so that if they have to take a business trip, they will send somebody with the mother, you know, to take care of the kid, or they will they will do a bunch of things to try to make it possible to not lose their human capital. So, you know, so for some mothers, you know, you you've gone to work. You're a woman. You've gone to work for Patagonia. I figured out that you're you're a good employee. You like the organization. You're useful. You're helpful. You're productive. And then you say, well, you know, I'm going to have a kid. To lose you means uh-huh. that I now have to start the training and enculturation process all over. I have to take the risk of hiring somebody else. It is much more efficient to keep someone there who knows the organization, who you know, who they know you. And and is an effective employee. And so they try to do many things to buffer that. He also told me the story, you know, he used to work for Sears. Now favorite, that's a change. <laughs> our, our favorite company. He was at Sears. He got one one time when he was working at Sears, he got an email at about four o'clock on a Christmas Eve. He responded at about nine o'clock the next day, which of course would be Christmas mm-hmm. Day. He got a complaint. Why did it take you so long to respond? Uh. And I asked him, well, what would happen in Patagonia if somebody did that? He said, we'd fire them. <laughs> I mean, so, so this is trying to build a culture in which the expectation is that as a leader, you are going to look out for the well being of your employees.
1: So, so you're Jeff Pfeffer, and uh, you'll love this. You are all powerful, just for five minutes, and just a fantasy. And you've got, you've got um, two magic ones. Okay. The the first one is is that you can sort of like touch. Let's just say every Fortune 500 CEO, and you have absolute power, and they're going to change the organization. It's going to reduce friction throughout corporate America. What's the what's the um, one thing you're going to have them do? Give up control. Ooh.
0: Why? Be- because a lot of the friction. You know this better than me. I mean, I don't know anything that you don't know better the the most of what most of the friction in organizations comes from practices that they have installed to maintain more control than they need You've got to fill out the budget forms. You've got to go through the budgeting process. You've got to report on every one of your expenses 14 times. You've got to submit receipts. Mm. You've got to do a thousand things which basically say, I don't trust you. Right. And if I trusted you, I wouldn't put you through this. A lot of the practices that get in people's way of doing their job and cause them to spend more time doing what they need to do than necessary is because of, of, the, of these excessive oh, okay, controls. Okay,
1: so, and so this is something you know a lot about. So, what is it about being in those powerful positions that stop them from being more reasonable?
0: I did the research with Robert Cialdini uh, now 20 years ago that showed that every decision that somebody was involved in making, they thought was a better decision because of their involvement. They felt better about themselves. They felt better about their subordinates. They felt better about the decisions that they made, in this case, the advertisement they produced. So everything you do is better for you having touched it.
1: So, so just to give people some context, Robert Cialdini is famous in the world of influence, and, and uh, Jeff and some students, they did a study where that essentially showed that the closer that a boss watches somebody work, the better they think the work is, regardless of the quality of the work. So That's correct. So, so, so those of you who um, are managers out there, if you're watching people really closely and doing micromanagement and you're thinking, you think you're making it better, research by uh, Jeff and Robert Cialdini essentially shows it's making you feel better about the work <laughs> but probably having no effect on the work. Is that fair? That's correct. Okay, now, now, we've mostly talked about bad friction, but there are some things in organizations that really should be harder to do. So, you got, okay, you got your, your panel of Fortune 500 CEOs, and you have absolute power, and what you're going to do is give them the power to make one thing harder to do in their organizations. What's that? Micromanage. Okay, so you're giving me the same the same. Anything else?
0: Of course, I'm going to give you the same. No, because we know the toxic effects of micromanagement. Right. And and so therefore, we're going to make it harder. And by the way, if you look at what, so when I talked uh, to the head of HR for Patagonia, and we had talked uh, to some about micromanagement as well, I said, what do you do? He said, we give people too many people to supervise. So therefore, Ooh. So therefore, they can't micromanage them because we give them too many.
1: Now that's interesting because I've heard you know there's all this evidence that smaller teams are more effective this is the best argument that i've ever heard for giving people an overly large team of course is is that you you make their jobs impossible to watch people more closely that's that's fabulous so you got you got to switch to sort of ultra zone defense instead of uh, well person on person Our guest has been Jeffrey Pfeffer from the Stanford Business School, author of Dying for a Paycheck. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Much of the friction we find in large organizations stems from an excessive attempt to exert control over employees' behavior. If you take anything from Jeff's interview, I hope it's the recognition backed by much research that by letting go a measure of managerial control, you'll actually help your employees be more productive, have better mental health, and support a better work-life balance. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, and even your therapists. On the next episode, we will be joined by restaurateurs Craig and Annie Stoll. We're going to talk about what it takes to manage seven restaurants in the Bay Area without having everything fly off the rails. And now for the final tangent.
0: Many people in in the United States, actually, have forgotten the wisdom of Adam Smith and the idea of specialization. So everybody today is supposed to be responsible for their own retirement plan. And so everybody, therefore, is supposed to be a great investment manager. Everybody is supposed to be responsible for managing their own medical care. And so everybody now needs to learn all about medicine and managing all their complex benefits choices. And what I argued for in that column, now that it comes back to me, is the advantages of specialization. So I... It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I do, when I, when I have health problems, which of course I do because I'm old and falling apart, I spend enormous amounts of time figuring out who is going to provide the particular medical service and no time trying to second-guess that individual. We can't do
1: this without you. Tell us, what's driving you crazy? And what are you doing to make life better in your organization, for yourself, and for the people that you work with? please send us your Friction stories, tips, and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. Jake Smith and Stife Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stussy is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcasts.